We're reading this morning from John 16, 5 to 16. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more. And then, after a little while, you will see me. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I I want you to imagine for a moment that you're a person who believes God exists. Say, well, that's not too hard, right? Because probably most of you do. But then I also want you to imagine that you also believe that the only way you can find life, true life, is to find God. And now suppose you also believe that God is hidden, invisible, mysterious, and really out of reach. As a matter of fact, it seems like he refuses to communicate. He only makes demands. But beyond that, not much communication. And you have this nagging sense of what you might call conscience that somehow you're responsible to find the truth. Truth about God. Truth about life, truth about yourself. It seems like a reasonable, kind God would not leave you on your, on your own. You know, this is not hypothetical. Even though it might not be you, Maybe some of those elements represent something of what you think. It's not hypothetical because millions of people all over the world think this is reality. That God is out there. That he's mysterious. That he's beyond understanding at all or knowing. And still he demands. And they have this uncanny sense that his demands are going to be the way he judges them. 
and they try to figure out what to do. As a matter of fact, it's part of the whole history of religions in the world. Now, what I've just described to you, in part, is true. God is mysterious. He's out there. He's beyond us. We cannot see or touch Him. We cannot actually hear His voice speaking like you hear mine speaking, although some people have heard that. Most of you probably didn't hear it yesterday. And as a matter of fact, it's true that the God of the universe expects us to seek Him and to find Him and He makes demands. That part is true. But the second half of the story is something different. It is what, in effect, we call Christianity. The second part of the story is this. That God who is demanding in terms of righteousness, that God who is out there and invisible beyond complete comprehension, but not beyond knowing, that God has revealed Himself. He's revealed Himself in the written Word, through the law and the prophets, through miracles in the past, and He has particularly revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. The Christian religion actually believes that God exists and loves us, and we have seen Him. And furthermore, that we can be in communication with this invisible God. Now, the passage we just read from John chapter 16, what we recognize is that the disciples were basically at this point. What I mean by that is the disciples understood the context of Christianity that I just described. They understood that Jesus Christ was among them and that God's revelation came through Jesus in a unique way. They understood that. And as a matter of fact, they were overwhelmed by it, delighted by it. They were following his every movement like a child runs behind his mother who's about to walk out of the room. They were listening to his every word. They were taking in his teaching because it seemed to be life for them. And then all of a sudden he said, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. It's been good. It's been great. But I'm gone. That's what John 14 through 16 really is. It's just Jesus saying it's been great, but I'm out of here. Now you can imagine the consternation of the disciples, can't you? They say to themselves and to him, really? We thought there was more. We've been hanging on your every word. As a matter of fact, we have a lot of more questions. How can you walk out on us? To which Jesus says something remarkable. He says, it's true I'm leaving, 
But what else is equally true? Is I'm sending a comforter, a counselor, and a guide. And that comforter, counselor, and guide will lead you into truth. I uh, like books that have an introduction. Mysteries never do this because it wouldn't work for a mystery. But I like books that have an introduction. They go something like this. The author says in the introduction, here's what I'm going to say. Keep reading and I'll say it more. Right? I'm going to summarize what I'm going to say and then I want you to listen as I play it out. I'm reading a book like that right now. He does a brilliant job of setting up everything he's going to say in really concise language. And then he says, now keep reading and I'll explain what I mean. Okay? You know the gospel that John is like that? Last week, Dan preached from it. And in chapter 1, the gospel of John opens this way with an introduction. It says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And as a matter of fact, the Word was active in creating all things. And in the Word, now we know that to be Jesus Christ, we, Christ, we have seen the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm telling you right now what I'm going to tell you more about in a few pages. That's what it's about. Now listen to this story. I say that because sometimes we start reading John chapter 14, 15, and 16 at this particular passage, and we say to ourselves, ah, the disciples knew exactly what he meant. They got it. They were just worried. No, they didn't. They didn't get it at all. They did not understand that Jesus was truly the second person of the Trinity. They did not understand what Paul later explicated in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 where he says Jesus is the image, the exact representation of the invisible God. He's the firstborn above all creation and by him everything was made in heaven and in earth and everything else. And what's even more remarkable is that all existence itself, this is a very profound cosmological statement, everything holds together in him. They had no idea about that yet. All they knew is that Jesus was with them. They loved his teaching. They loved his miracles. And he was about to leave. And then he says something really remarkable. And it's just fascinating to me. He says to him, listen, fellas, I'm about ready to leave, but it's going to get a lot better when I'm gone. What? You know, I um, joke with my wife sometimes. I tell her, you know, you're really a lot better off if I die because I've got a great insurance policy. i got a great life insurance policy. The house will be paid for. You'll never have to work again. I'm really serious about life insurance. I, I make sure I have it. And you're good. And somehow, that doesn't satisfy her. She, that it's amazingly, she'd rather have me, right? I'm wondering if the disciples are like that. They're saying, 
I don't understand what you're talking about. But no matter if it's better, we want you. Jesus says, sorry, I'm leaving. And I'm going to send this person called the counselor, the comforter, the guide. And he's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to speak about me exclusively. And he's going to help you understand things about me that you could not understand in my presence. So goodbye for now. I'll see you later. You know what, in effect, Jesus is saying? I'm leaving, but I'm leaving you a person. I'm leaving you a personal, constant guide. When you disciples are separated by a thousand miles, and there were times they were, I'll be with all of you no matter where you are. I can't be with all of you no matter where you are now. You have to be together in my presence in order to experience me. But in my absence, the Holy Spirit, who is deeply personal, will be with you constantly wherever you go. And of course, we know he wasn't just talking about them. He was talking about us. So through the power of the Spirit, the presence, the real presence of Jesus Christ is in your hearts by faith and is in you and with you no matter where you go, anytime for the rest of your life. Actually, that is better. The Holy Spirit is personal. But Jesus also says the Holy Spirit is practical. Because He's going to teach you. He's going to teach you all kinds of things you don't understand now. He's going to unfold my words and my actions in ways that you couldn't have understood on your own. Wouldn't you love to know some of the questions the disciples asked Jesus when they were with him? Obviously, we don't have all of them recorded. I mean, how many harebrained, stupid ideas did they have and how many dumb questions did they ask, right? It had to be great. I just wish I knew them. Jesus basically says, Whenever I'm gone, in my absence, you'll understand the question. Because the Holy Spirit will open your hearts by faith. And here's how it happened. Jesus dies. He's raised again. He goes back to the Father. And the apostles start spreading the gospel. Where does it begin? The day of Pentecost. What happens? People who were formerly timid become very vocal. Not because they fully understand, but because they know now the power of God within them. And they begin to speak. And then somebody comes along named the Apostle Paul. And by the power of the Spirit, he writes epistles for us that help us understand the depths of the teachings of Jesus. But did you ever notice? The Apostle Paul hardly ever refers to Jesus. No, seriously, he doesn't. He does, but he doesn't. What I mean by that is if you read the epistles of Paul, you're going to see a lot more references to other things like the law and the prophets and even like non-canonical books and sometimes secular poets. Paul is so immersed 
in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit guiding him, that he takes all of life and he says, oh my goodness, just be quiet for a few minutes and I'll tell you how all of that points to Jesus. And he did it every day of his life. How did he do it? By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what is our gift? What he wrote to the churches. Some of it is really heady theology. And some of it is enormously practical. Like the pastoral epistles. Paul and Peter both speak into the lives of congregations who are struggling with really everyday, ordinary matters. And Peter and Paul give them advice about how to conduct themselves. Now, now before we rush to conclusions concerning every bit of advice in the pastoral epistles, let us remind ourselves that when Paul or any of the other New Testament authors gives us a particular situation and tells us, do this, that situation might not be exactly what we encounter, right? He couldn't have covered everything, just like Jesus didn't cover everything. So what does Paul do in the epistles, especially the pastoral epistles and Timothy? I mean, that's his. And, and uh, Peter, they give us practical bits of advice for certain situations. And then, as always, as always, the whole point is take this principle of Christian living and apply it. Take the principle wherever you are and apply it. You know what the unspoken reality is? If you take this principle of following Christ and apply it wherever you are, if you do that, you will be guided by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit that Jesus said was going to come. So the epistles of Paul are heady theology. His pastoral epistles are remarkably practical. But you know that's not the end of the story of the New Testament. Inspired by God's Holy Spirit, John the Apostle writes the book of Revelation. And what does he do there? Nothing practical. You might call it heady theology, but that probably is not even a good description either. What he basically does is he says, God in the person of Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord of all this mess. And one day, he's going to bring it all together. It's going to fit together like a perfect puzzle. Justice will arrive. Wickedness will be punished. Thank God he didn't ask me to do it. He's doing it. And all will be well. So you have in, in the epistles of Paul, heady theology. You got in the pastoral epistles, very pragmatic, practical descriptions of Christian living. And you have in Revelation, hey, fellas and gals, don't worry because even though it looks like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, I've got it under control and I'm going to piece all this thing together in the end. Trust in me. Have hope. That's the story of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is personal. The Spirit is practical. But let us not forget the Spirit is also powerful. I mentioned um, the day of Pentecost. 
I don't know if you were to add up the number of hours. It would be interesting. I guess you could do it or come close to it. The number of hours between the time Peter denied ever knowing Christ and when he preached on the day of Pentecost. I mean, I know it was days, but it was also hours. I haven't sat down to figure it out before. But it's fascinating to me. That guy, who only days and hours earlier, had cursed out loud and said, I don't even know him, became the man who stood up and preached on the day of Pentecost with all kinds of power, conviction, and authority. Why? Because of the Spirit of God. Because of what Jesus said was coming. He said, I'm going to pour out my Spirit on you. And it's going to be better than if I were with you. I noticed um, about the Apostles' proclamation. It was bold. But their boldness wasn't for the purpose of condemnation. Although they speak of judgment, their boldness was for the purpose of proclaiming good news. And it was so bold, they told the world about it, and they paid the ultimate price. They didn't think twice. Because the Holy Spirit of God burned within them. That's why it'll be better, said Jesus, after I go. No, God, you see, is no longer hidden. Of course, he's revealed in the Scripture. But he's revealed Jesus Christ. And God continues to reveal himself through the present practical power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if anybody else would call me an academic, but that's the way I think of myself. I just think that way. I kind of drive people crazy sometimes. I know I kind of drive you guys crazy sometimes. Because you want me to not be so esoteric or something, and I try. But I'm just a thinker. And it's, it's, it's a gift, I guess. But it's also a curse. Right? Everybody's greatest strength is also a weakness in disguise. So... I promise you that as a friend and a pastor, I get up every morning and study this. I can't imagine beginning my day without it. But I can't tell you that every day when I wake up to study this, I spend deliberate, considerable time 
and asking the Holy Spirit of God to open this to my heart. I mean, I know it's part of my understanding. I I really don't think that I can understand the Scripture without the inspiration of the Spirit. I, I don't think I can even preach without the inspiration of the Spirit. But when I have a real serious self inventory, I realize that most of the time, I'm just trying to figure it out myself. I believe it all the way to the soles of my feet. And I feel a measure of confidence that I can figure it out. And and I feel so blessed that I have the revelation of God written. But I must admit that that's the major thing in my approach to life and ministry. So as I study this passage, I wonder whether or not I'm missing really the major thing. Which is to study the Scriptures to preach and to lead while constantly crying out passionately for the inspiration, the leadership, the power of the Spirit. See, our um, background even if you don't call yourself an academic, it's pretty academic. Evangelicals, whatever that term means nowadays for many people, it it definitely means this. It means studying the Word. It means figuring out the meaning of words. It means looking at grammar. It means Bible study after Bible study after Bible study. Imagine how many hours thousands of hours you and I have spent in Bible study. You know we have. It's at the core of who we are. But isn't it also true that the core of who we are ought to be passionate prayer for the inspiration and power that comes from the Spirit of God? In the last few weeks, I've had conversations with several people who have challenged me about prayer. And I'm trying to take the challenge seriously without jumping the gun. Without making a New Year's resolution that I've made too many times. Without saying, good idea, let's do that, and then not following through. I'm trying to slowly and deliberately figure out what it really means and how I can enter into it. 
So I'm asking you to join me. I, I don't know what form of announcement it will take, but I'm pretty sure that at some point, as a, a student of prayer and not an expert, I will talk about it together with us for a while. And I think I'll probably uh, give a call to prayer for all of us. Because I don't, maybe I'm a bad representation of you, but I don't think we are very good at that. I think there's other parts of the Christian tradition that emphasize it more and understand it better than we do. And without any answers, I'm just saying I think we need to open our hearts through prayer, by faith, to the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God. I don't, I don't know what else to say except to say I hope you join me privately and corporately in seeking the face of God. Let's pray. Lord, at the um, end of almost every sermon, we thank you for your grace and for your word. But today, I want to thank you for your promise. Your promise that more than words on a page and more than sermons in a service, you've given us your Holy Spirit to guide us. And so I confess and I would assume others are joining me that we um, have neglected the promise that relates to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we believe it. But so often, at least for me, it doesn't seem like it has feet. So I pray, Lord, that you will open the eyes of our hearts even to understand what it means and to take deliberate steps to follow your Spirit. It could be really unnerving. It could even be kind of alarming because it seems uncertain. You're God and you speak in ways that we might not expect. So we pray that, as Paul said, you will open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see, understand, and follow in the power of the Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.